Hey everybody, this is Thomas Boer. Um, today I wanted to share with you, tonight really, something that I'm going to be doing tomorrow in Sunday School. Basically we're going through these videos by the, um, I believe it's called the Institute of Creation Research. And in it they talk about why we believe what we believe about creation, uh, the earth, the flood, all that. And my job basically is to talk about the uniqueness of the Earth, how it stands out among all the other planets, um, sun, moon, stars, and everything. What makes the Earth unique? Or is it unique? Are there other planets that can be inhabited by, well, humans, but really any life? Is there any life forms out there? Are there any living things which could reach out to us or contact us or we could get in contact with them? That is something which uh, evolutionists will look for. Uh, they they figure that since the Earth and the, well, the universe is so enormous that there must be life somewhere out there. That the odds say that Earth is not unique, that it is not one of a kind, but in fact that there are other planets that are in sort of this uh, Goldilocks zone where um, the conditions are just right for um, life to develop, and uh, there's water, and there's all the ingredients needed for life to exist and to some degree prosper. Uh, the video on the uniqueness of the Earth does a pretty good job, I think, of showing that um, the Earth indeed is unique and that there is not um, any evidence, at least, for life on any other planet. And, of course, we're just one tiny little speck uh, in the vastness of the universe, so any kind of argument on this based on the evidence is obviously speculative and it's, at best, what we can examine is a drop in a bucket, uh, but still, uh, given that there is no evidence for it, as far as we know, um, we probably shouldn't assume that there is evidence, even if we're coming from a um, an atheistic perspective. The video talks about how the Earth is just right in its tilt, in the moon not being too close or too big to cause the uh, tides to um, cover lowlands and cause flooding, and the sun's just perfectly far away at the right distance. We orbit orbit around the Earth at the right um, angle and pace. The sun isn't very violent as far as its eruption, so it doesn't burn us. Uh, all these things come together, so many things, even things that I've already forgotten, so that life can exist, so that it can prosper, and that temperatures do not swing so drastically that life cannot be supported. And the whole point in pointing these things out is saying that this is no accident that the precision with which these things are calculated screams to any person who is not heavily biased against a god that there must be um, a god. Now evolutionists would likely say, well, the odds were that at least one planet would be like this because it's so huge and enormous, but 
the real question is, can you get um, life from non-life? Can you get, even with the right elements for life that's here on Earth, can you get that life out of not having any life? Can you evolve? Uh, can you get something from nothing? And I think everybody knows logically that you cannot, that God, when he created, he created out of the power of his own being and out of himself. So the video is helpful. But what I want to talk about in addressing the uniqueness of the earth is kind of switching gears and flipping it to another side and saying what we have through Christ, the redemption we have in Christ, is the kingdom of Christ, the cosmic kingdom of Christ. And that's what I want to talk about in the time remaining is the cosmic kingdom of Christ. But to get there to the cosmic proportions of it, we want to start with the uniqueness of the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28 tells us that man was created to fill the earth and to subdue it. Um, God worked preparing the earth for, well, really six days, filling it and, and, and building it. Um, and the earth in the beginning, if you remember, in the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Right there, the earth is seen to be unique from all the rest of creation. God made the heavens, stars, the moon, the planets, the third heaven where God exists. But he also made the earth. The earth stands separate in some sense, some unique sense from the rest of creation. And we get that in the very first verse of Scripture. And then we read, man was planted in the garden at the, as the crowning jewel of creation to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, as God's representative, as made in the image of God, and to do this for God's glory. And again, fill the earth and subdue it is the command. And at this point, we don't hear fill the universe um, per se, um, but we do see the earth itself being subdued for the glory of God, and that was man's original, man and woman's original intent. And that never has been abrogated. That's never gone away. Man's purpose is still to fill the earth and subdue it. The way we do that now is more complex because we have a fallen world it's more complex because there's sinners around us it's more complex because we are sinful still even as christians but nonetheless we still fill the earth and subdue it now as the body the blood-bought body of christ and we're going to work towards that as we go um another thing that makes the earth unique other than it's separated in the first passage of scripture other than it was created before all other planets and stars think about that in the beginning on day one the earth you see is without form and void and god begins to shape it there's light there's darkness and so on and it's only later you get the sun moon and the stars and the other heavenly hosts so that the fact that the earth is older and first in creation obviously gives it um prominence um you know, I mean, we we may understand God creating the heavens and the earth um, a bit differently than some, but when you get to the days of creation, uh, it's clear that it begins with the earth, and then only later with these other planets and stars um, populating the 
the blank universe, if you will. Okay, also, if you go to First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, there you read that even angels long to look into the salvation that we as Christians have. The heavens look into this. The angels look down upon this. What does this tell us? It tells us that heaven's preoccupation, in one sense you could say, is the earth. The angels minister the, to the earth. God comes down to dwell with man upon the earth. The earth is the center of the universe insofar as it is the center of God's dealings and, and the heart and the arena in which the drama of redemption is unfolding. First Peter 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. God dwells with man from heaven Christ comes down from heaven to become man. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, proceeds from the Father and the Son, comes and dwells in man, regenerating us, illuminating us. Earth is the center of God's dealings. It is where man exercises dominion. It is where man was created. Clearly, earth, then, theologically, and according to God, and that's all that really matters, is the center of all things and is unique. Now, what else does man exercise dominion over? Well, he exercises dominion over the animals, does he not? The animals are certainly powerful in some cases and have greater intelligence, and yet man is distinct. God breathes his spirit into man, something he does not do with animals. We alone are made in the image of God. And though we bear many similarities to animals, we are not merely animals, but we are indeed the image of God. Animals are not that, not in that exact specific sense where we have uh, morals and a will and we reflect on our existence and we exercise dominion and we do that over all creeping things the earth and all that fills it over the animals over everything now the curse of sin has profoundly disturbed that even as we're redeemed through christ but yet we do make and are making throughout the centuries advances in medicine and even in literally taming wild animals Revelation 21.3 says, In the end, in the culmination of all things, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So from beginning to end, God is dwelling with man, and that is upon the earth. In all of this, we see the uniqueness of the earth on the face of, well, face, face of the earth, among the cosmos and all the world. Okay. Psalm 19, 1 through 6, 
also indicates that the universe itself declares the glory of God. His power, his, well, for lack of a better word, his hugeness, his enormity, and his beauty. Even this fallen creation is beautiful. But that we are so infinitesimal, little speck, and yet Christ has come down to save us, to redeem us, that leads us to Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? That we have been made a little lower than the angels and been redeemed and given honor and glory and all these things through Christ, and yet we are lowly. Well, the, the magnitude of the universe reveals not only God's power and his sovereignty and his beauty and his majesty, but also because Christ comes down, because God redeems his people, his grace, his mercy, his love, that we indeed are nothing. Not just spiritually or within ourselves, but in the world, in the universe. We are nothing. We are but dust. And yet, he saves us. And the angels in the heavens look down on us intently. And so when Carl Sagan, I quote him in this video, when he says that we are insignificant and tiny in the universe, and we're, we're on some, you know, tiny little speck in the corner of the universe has been forgotten. That's where he goes wrong. He's right. We are insignificant. We are a speck. We're in some little tiny part of the universe, but we're not forgotten. Because of Christ, we're not insignificant. And Sagan could not understand that because of his hard-heartedness. So God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and everything to reveal his glory, but not just to reveal his glory, but to actually get praise from what he has made. Yes, <laughs> Psalm 148 tells us that the sun, moon, stars, the planets, everything, in fact, praises God. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. And it goes on, the sea creatures, the hail, the snow, the clouds, all these things fulfill his word beasts and cattle, creeping things, kings of the earth, all the people, everyone and everything is to praise his name. His name alone is to be exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He is exalted. He has exalted the horn of his people to the praise of all his saints, of the children of Israel, a people near to him. Praise the Lord. Everything praises him. Everything resounds to his greatness to his glory even creation echoes his praise even the mountains clap in song and symphony to him so the whole universe then has value and that may be the challenge that is kind of pushed back if we say well the earth is unique the earth is special that's where God's dealings are at the unbeliever the atheist the evolution might say okay if we grant that then why everything else? Why would God bother to make all of that? And what do, you, what do you think about that? Well, before the fall, 
obviously the sun would not burn up and kill people, <laughs> uh, disintegrate them into nothing from the heat. We would not freeze to death. We wouldn't die, right? The wages of sin is death. There'd be no pain or suffering. And so it, it, it seems quite reasonable to conclude that as Adam and Eve, if they'd never sinned, as they and their posterity would fill the earth and subdue it as they were commanded, they would have certainly gotten to rocket ships as we have and overcome gravity um, and, and been able to go to distant galaxies, distant planets, distant, gal- distant galaxies eventually. And so we would, without sin, inhabited the cosmos, these universes. And as they praise God, we would subdue every planet, every galaxy, everything for his glory. Now, it may very well be that in God's purposes, it would have been a while before we left Earth. Earth would probably always remain our sort of central hub since we started there. It it follows that it would be the most advanced planet on Earth, and from there we'd always return. And and that's how it still is, and and I believe that it always will be, that Earth is sort of the capital planet of the universe. And so when we think about the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and Israel and the Promised Land, the future isn't that Christ is going to return and make, you know, Palestine some sort of extra special holy place on earth, but that Israel and Palestine was a microcosm, a small picture, a foretaste, a a type of the reign and the rule of God over all things that would be fully and finally accomplished in Christ, inaugurated at his first coming and consummated when he returns. And so when Christ returns to redeem Israel, that's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that's the whole earth, the whole creation groans, Romans 8 says. Romans 8, 18-25 makes it clear that the earth is groaning, and it groans for its redemption, which is tied into the redemptions of the Son the sons of God. And why is that? Well, for one, the earth was subjected to futility when we fell into sin. It was cursed when we rebelled against God. And so it will be redeemed when we are redeemed. And it will be redeemed as we are redeemed because we are to subdue the earth and fill it. And so however we come to understand how the earth will be um, renewed, because there will be a new heavens and a new earth, what we do know is that this present earth longs for the redemption of its body and it has the same hope that we have for the redemption of our bodies. Now we will get new glorified spiritual bodies but it's clear from Christ who is the first fruits his glorified body could still be recognized as who he was before he died. He still ate food and so it's, it stands to reason at the very least that the new heavens and the new earth will bear much resemblance to uh, the world that we have now because it will be the same world. It will be in continuity with it, just as our renewed, restored spiritual bodies uh, are reconstituted and and in continuity with um, our, our corruptible body as we put on incorruption. So will the earth, and there will be continuity between this creation and the new renewed creation, probably the best way to express that. And so our labors in the universe now is worthwhile because the sun, moon, and stars praise him now and will always praise him. And right now also longs for its redemption that comes when we are redeemed. 
And so this is the cosmic kingdom of Christ that he rules and he reigns at the right hand of the Father even now, it says in Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2.6, it says that we reign with Christ even now in heaven. And because Christ fills all things through us, we bear much responsibility in subduing the earth now through the present reign of Christ, which we are spiritually, spiritually united to him. And through him, and he through us, fills all things. Ephesians 1, two, uh, 22 talks about this. Let me turn there. Ephesians 2, or sorry, Ephesians 1, I should say. Ephesians 1, 22 says, And he, that is God, the Father, put all things under his, that's Christ, God the Son, his feet. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Listen, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then go down to verse 6 of chapter 2. We've been raised up with Christ together and we've been made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. It's a gift of God, not of works that none should, should boast. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you keep reading through this magnificent passage here in Ephesians, and you hear the mystery that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That Jews and Gentiles together partake in this and that Christ fills all things through his body, the church. And then you come to Ephesians 4. And after reading some amazing stuff that we're all together in him, there's one God and Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all. And it says in verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And how does he do that? Well, it says he gave some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers... Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love." And then there's this exhortation to put on the new man, to put off the old man, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, to be holy, to throw off sin, bitterness, wrath, all these things, to forgive one another, to walk in love in chapter 5. 
to imitate Paul in righteousness and holiness and conduct. And so you learn through all these things that we are to be wise and holy and speak the truth and love the brethren and love everyone in, in the proper and appropriate sense. And so there's much to glean from all of that. Um, and this is a very abbreviated thing to go through with all these verses. But one quote here by John Piper, he says, God means to fill the universe with the glory of his Son by putting the church on display as the embodiment of his Son. Think about that. We are the body of Christ. In that sense, we are the embodiment of God the Son, of Jesus Christ. And it is the church, Christ's body, by which God means to fill the universe with his glory. And the glory is of his Son. And what kind of glory does Christ have? Christ has an enthroned glory. Christ has a glory in which he reigns at the right hand of the Father, enthroned, seated, his work finished, and yet his work ongoing through us. And that the kingdom is his. And our prayer now, as Christ taught his disciples to pray, is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Right? We pray earth be done as it is done in heaven and earth ultimately extends it begins at the earth it extends throughout the whole universe so Christ's glory then is a kingly glory and we the church the body of Christ we don't only pray the Lord's prayer or pray like it that his kingdom come as will be done on earth as it is in heaven but through Christ and God's predestined redemptive sanctifying glorious plan we have become privileged to participate in making that prayer a reality through all that we do right our work our recreation to our jobs our families our marriage not just what we do at church not just those who are in full-time as it's so-called full-time ministry work pastor evangelist missionary type thing but no everything we do all that we do is done for the glory of God. When Matthew 6 says, Christ says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, all the the needs that we have to live and survive, Christ is saying the kingdom at all costs. Don't worry about anything else. It is the kingdom and me, the king, Jesus, that you live for. I'm your king. I will provide for you your physical needs. And I'll provide your spiritual needs so long as you seek first my kingdom. And we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness by living holy and righteous lives. Ephesians 4 makes clear that there's a unity in the kingdom of God. And it is a unity of truth and faith and love. It's faith, truth, and love. It's a unity in faith in Jesus Christ, a confession of him, a reliance upon him and his strength and the spirit that he gives us love and adoration and praising of God, our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Friend. It's that uni- unity of that faithful confession in Him. And that comes through knowing the truth, not being tossed by false teaching, by the deceit- deceitful philosophies of this world, but knowing the truth, living by the truth, 
being sanctified, becoming more and more holy, and then proclaiming and sharing that truth in word and deed, in love, particularly for the brethren, and also, as much as depends upon us, to those who are not believers, to those who are outside of the church, to call them into the church, also to refute them and to decry them and to tell them uh, of their judgment that comes upon them and those who set up themselves against the kingdom of God and his rule and his reign who are obstinate. We call them into the kingdom. We also warn them of the judgment to come as they persist against the kingdom. And this is how God's kingdom grows. And this is how we seek first his kingdom. And you can certainly apply faith in Christ, living truthfully and honestly and holy and godly lives, and loving God and loving your brother, your believing brother and sister, and loving your neighbor as yourself. You can apply all that to everything that you do. And through that, the kingdom of God is further manifest and more and more through the regenerating work of the Spirit and the convicting influence of the truth upon all things and all rulers and principalities in the earth and all governors and all that tries to oppose God, those things are reduced and diminished and in some cases even overthrown and will advance by degrees until Christ returns. And then when Christ returns, all the evil that continues to persecute the church will be done away with, thrown away, destroyed, and righteousness and peace will reign and they will do no harm on my holy mountain, declares the Lord. And I will be their God and they will be my people They will love me and serve me and I will love them and provide for them. God will do all these things, but we have been privileged to carry that task as the church, the body of Christ, even now to help make that by the power of God and his grace and mercy as he wills in his sovereignty a reality. For it is Christ through the church that fills all things. And it begins where? It begins with the earth. The earth is where it begins. It's where it ends at least in this age and in the age to come the eternal everlasting age the earth will clearly be the center of the universe still where we will reign as our capital city our capital planet if you will and the curse on all the other galaxies in the universe will be lifted and I believe we will have access to all these galaxies and rule and reign and glorify and subdue them uh, to glorify Christ as well, to glorify God under his authority. And even in heaven, perhaps, then, we will still be filling all things for his glory. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful that... God does have a purpose for insignificant man making us significant through Christ for all that we've lost from our original significance being the image of God and the uniqueness of the earth it groans and all creation groans with it for our redemption in the sons of God so that it too can be redeemed so that fellowship between God and man and man and man and man and beast and man and earth can be restored there's perfect harmony and the wolf does no harm to the lamb and a little child leads them this is the cosmic kingdom peace and righteousness and glory and joy and laughter and children and and 
singing and dancing in the streets and praising God and creating beautiful things to glorify Him and to serve Him. And there's no more sin and there's no more sorrow and there's no more pain. And all we want is Christ. And there's a perfect love for Him, for all the elect, for all God's people, for the whole bride. And we enjoy all of creation together and for His glory. And we worship Him and praise Him forever and ever and ever. That is our kingdom. That is our king. That is the glory we have. And even now, we reign with him. And we live in the overlap of the ages. The the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand, Christ said. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. And the gospel really is the good news that the kingdom of God is here. Oh, it's here. And it's still coming, but it is here. And it is growing. It is our duty to carry that, that, that task. And we do that through truth and faith and love and proclaiming the crown rights of King Jesus over all things and politics and economics and art and science and sports and everything. We seek to subdue it for the glory of God. For it's his, all of it. And there is much rebellion and many rebel, rebels and still those who, though they are now under God's kingdom of the risen King Jesus, they still set up their temporary authority here on earth and oppress God's people and shake their fists at Almighty God. But their reign is slippery. Their foot shall slide in due time. The wicked will be overthrown in due season. God and his people, we with Christ shall reign forever. And oh, to grace, how great a debtor we are. That God would take on flesh so that we could become partakers in some sense of his glory and heirs of Christ. Oh, what blessings we have in him. What joy, what privileges are at his right hand. Well, I hope this has been encouraging. I hope that you can at least share that with any secular unbelieving scientist friends you have, that there's a much more beautiful picture than the pale blue dot message of Sagan that ultimately leads to at best a a imaginative hollowness that we could never really fill and we're just left gaping at the vast gloom that is the universe when we know that it longs for our redemption so that it too can be redeemed so now we groan and the creation groans, the joy comes in the morning, and there's joy even now because the morning light has dawned in the coming of Christ. And so joy and sorrow flow mingled together upon our heads, but just the same, we know that the sorrow is ending soon. And we pray, Lord Jesus, come. Yet we also pray, 
May your church be filled with all your people for all that you died. And that's the only good reason for Christ to tarry, for God to tarry, so that the fullness of his people could come in to the kingdom, so that he could fill all in all, over all, for his glory. Amen.